Well, again, good morning. It's great to be here. I notice that there's a, a bunch of South Africans in this congregation. Um, I do love South Africans, uh, even though my wife's dad actually originally comes from Rhodesia, so I've got a great affinity with Africa, uh, the second greatest rugby nation in the world. Yeah, and the All Blacks aren't first, let me tell you. Okay. Well, friends, we've got an opportunity to look at uh, a wonderful part of the scriptures today. And I want to start by asking you a question. What is the most important life lesson that you've ever learnt? The most important life lesson. Think about from the ages of zero to ten, many of the parents in the room today would say stranger danger. Very important lesson. What about ten, um, from the age of ten to sixteen? Listen to your parents. Very important lesson. From the age of 17 to 23, listen to your parents. Another very important lesson. You know, I'm learning that with my daughter now who's 15 years of age. So, you know, I've, I've been trying to get my gun licence and get that double barrel shotgun ready for the boys that are coming around. But, you know, we're always saying to the, our daughters, listen to our advice. But study hard's another one in that age. Pursue your dreams in earnest. From the age of 23 to 30, choose the person you marry very wisely. Very important lesson. You know, the result from that can be a life of blessing or a life of disaster. 30 to 50, manage your money very effectively. It's an important life lesson, isn't it? Now, if I was going to ask you the question, though, what does God think the most important life lesson is? How would you answer that question? It's a rhetorical question, but it's an important question, isn't it? And this morning we're going to look at that in Daniel chapter 4 and 5. I think in these chapters you, you see a wonderful answer to that question of what does God think the most important life lesson is. And we see it in this book, Daniel. It's an ancient book, but it's incredibly relevant for the 21st century. It's just packed full of fantastic wisdom and, uh, and information for our lives. But before I go on, because we've got Daniel 4 and 5 today, just want to give you an overview of these two chapters Firstly, we'll witness in these two chapters the rise and fall of a great nation, the nation of Babylon. It's a huge and immense and powerful kingdom. We'll also get to know two kings uh, in this nation of Babylon. We'll get to know Nebuchadnezzar again in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5 we'll get to know a king called Belshazzar. We'll be reintroduced in these chapters to a spokesman, a prophet, someone named Daniel and he's got two messages to deliver to two kings and they come with two divine challenges, one in the form of a dream and the other in, in the form of divine graffiti, a finger riding in the plaster of a royal palace. And, but we'll see through these chapters that there's one main message, one main lesson that rings out like a bell. It's so loud and it's so clear. One of the kings actually learns the lesson, the other king doesn't learn it, and there are incredibly difficult and painful circumstances and consequences that flow from him not learning that lesson. Now in chapter 1, we've already seen that God is sovereign. He's in complete control of the universe. He's in control of the big details of life and also in the small details. In chapter 2, God is eternal. That means he is powerful, but this eternal God speaks. 
He speaks with clarity to the people of his world. In chapter 3, we've seen that God saves. He rescues those who trust in him. Those that are faithful to God, he clings to them, he helps them, he saves them, he rescues them. Chapter 4, we'll see today that God transforms. He makes people who are proud, humble. And in chapter 5, we'll see that God judges. There are consequences for pride. And those consequences are serious. Friends, point one today is all about Nebuchadnezzar. And he's got the first lesson from God. And it's a lesson that basically can be headed under the idea of pride goes before a fall. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as you may already know, is an, uh, he's an ancient pagan despot. He's not really a very nice man. He's a dictator. He's the king of the known world of that time. And he knows it. And he loves being the king. He loves being powerful. He wants glory for himself. And we saw that last week in chapter 3, didn't we? You know, he wanted to be worshipped. Worshipped. He set up a statue for himself so that people could worship him. You could label Nebuchadnezzar a glory thief. He actually wants to steal glory away from the one true God and bring it to himself. He thinks he deserves it. He's conquered powerful nations. People sort of rise and fall on his command. He is powerful. He thinks that he's in control and that nothing can stand in his way. Self-sufficiency rule his world. Now this King Nebuchadnezzar, he does think he's in control, but he's witnessed some... He's witnessed some incredibly powerful things. Back in chapter 3, we've seen that he's witnessed the power of the one true God. You know, God rescues his servants Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from sure death in a fiery furnace. And he bears witness in chapter 3 verse 29 to the fact that God is powerful, that God has rescued the servants of Yahweh from this fiery furnace. So he's seen that, he's got head knowledge about who God is he understands that God is powerful. He understands that God rescues his servants, but he regresses. He falls back into old patterns of pride because that head knowledge hasn't turned into heart knowledge. So God decides to speak to him through a dream and then through his prophet Daniel to wake him up from his pride-fueled delusion about his own greatness. And so God's teaching Nebuchadnezzar a life lesson. How does it start? Well, it starts with a dream. We see that in verse 5. This dream absolutely terrifies Nebuchadnezzar. He brings all the professional wise men of his kingdom in verse 7 and 8 to try and interpret this dream. All of them come. All of them fail. None of them can understand what this dream is all about. Then in verse 9 to 18, this dream is recounted to Daniel. It's about an amazing tree, a tree that sort of in a sense stands in the middle of these beautiful sort of grasslands, but it just encompasses everything. It is majestic and wonderful and just beautiful. And Daniel's the only one that can interpret this dream. In verse 19 through to verse 27, Daniel interprets it and he tells this king Nebuchadnezzar, he says, King, this, this tree represents you and your kingdom. It's powerful. It's glorious. It's brought provision to so many people. It's a picture of your powerful kingdom. But 
it's going to be cut down. It's going to be dealt with. However, and there's a big however, the stump and the root system of this tree remain. And after seven years of humbling, the tree will begin to grow again. And this kingdom, a real kingdom in human history, will be restored. But it's only going to be restored when this King Nebuchadnezzar learns a very important lesson. And it's a lesson that we all need to learn. What is that lesson? Well, one of the things that's really important in the book of Daniel and in any narrative really in the Old Testament is that if God wants to teach you a lesson, he's going to repeat himself so that you can get the, the lesson loud and clear. And that's what happens in narrative again and again. The big lesson, the big thing that stands out is repeated. And so let's see what this lesson is in chapter 4, verse 17. And I'll read a couple of verses for you. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. Verse 25, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 26, when you acknowledge that heaven rules, and again it's repeated in verse 32. So what's the lesson? You've heard this before, but it's an important lesson for everybody in this room. God is sovereign. He's in complete control. I love the phrase, heaven rules. It may look like the kingdoms of this world rule, but somebody stands behind the kingdoms of this rule and the kings of the kingdoms of this world. And he's the one with absolute control. That is God Most High, the Sovereign Lord, the God that has revealed himself in the Scriptures. That's a very important lesson for you and for I, or for you and for me, and also for the King. But something stands in front of him learning this lesson. And it's something that starts with the word P, pride. Uh, pride blinds Nebuchadnezzar to this truth. Pride actually stops this message going from his head to his heart. Pride prevents the king learning this lesson immediately. And it takes, would you believe, seven years of humbling and humiliation for the king to learn this lesson. But before that happens, there's actually 12 months before the fulfilment of this dream. You know, the interpretation that Daniel gives 12 months before it takes place. And so you can imagine... Nebuchadnezzar over that entire year thinking this is all good I'm still the king of my kingdom I'm still the most powerful person on planet earth but then something takes place after a year he's actually walking on the roof of his royal palace and we're told in verse 30 that as he walks on the roof of this palace he says these words is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar. He speaks what's actually in his heart. Often uh, we hide what's truly in our heart about what we really believe about who we are and how important we are. But Nebuchadnezzar shows what's really going on inside him. And when he shows, it's a bit terrifying, isn't it? Because he actually says, yeah, I'm the true king. 
Everything that I've got here is because of me and my power and my glory. It's all for me, for my self-promotion. Nebuchadnezzar is a glory thief. He steals glory away from the one true being in the universe that deserves it, the Lord God, the King of the universe. Then in verse 28 to 30, we bear witness to the fall of this incredibly powerful king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And it happens in an instant. Bang. Boom. This world that he's built around him, the power that he knows and he's experienced for so many years, that power is gone in an instant. He's humbled. He's brought low. He actually loses his mental health. He loses his sanity. For seven years, he's mm, mooing like a cow, chewing grass like an animal. You know, we're told in these verses that he can't do anything. He can't reason normally with other human beings. He loses his authority. He loses his position. He loses his power. And it all happens in the twinkling of an eye. And something changes after that seven years, the seven-year period. He actually comes to a point where he recognises that God is God and he's not. I remember someone telling me about this primary school teacher and one of the things that she wanted to teach all of her class was just one important lesson. And she used to say it like this, if you don't learn anything from my lessons after today, I just want you to learn one lesson and that is there is a God and it's not you. Okay, it's an important lesson to learn, isn't it? And it took Nebuchadnezzar through these horrifying sort of experiences to come to that point where he recognises God is God, I'm not, there's somebody more important uh, and more powerful than I am and it's the true God and, and in verses 34 to 35 he actually brings out these beautiful verses of praise to God. talks about God's eternal dominion that goes on from generation to generation. It talks about his power to do what he pleases in heaven and also on earth. And he says he brings down the proud and can make the proud humble. They're stunning verses. Nebuchadnezzar has a true encounter with the living God, this king of Babylon. You know, God, in a sense, invades his space, brings him to a point where he recognises who God is and Nebuchadnezzar's humbled. He's never the same again. But he needs to learn the lesson that pride goes before a fall. And when, when the fall comes, it's surprising, it's sudden. I mean, we know that, don't we, through New South Wales politics of late. You know, somebody's going on, they're the king of New South Wales politics, as it were, and over a bottle of Grange. It's all over. You know, powerful one day, extreme authority, and the next, nothing. It's all gone. That's why Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So friends, that's lesson one for Nebuchadnezzar. Pride goes before a fall. Very important lesson for him to, to learn. But point two is all about uh, our second king, Belshazzar. And he's got a lesson as well. This lesson relates to the fact that pride is judged. It's a serious thing before God. Now in chapter 5 there's a similar pattern to chapter 4. The new king, the ancestor of King Nebuchadnezzar, he's given a message from God. This is a different message from the dream. 
is a little bit more surprising. It's in your face. God really sort of wants to um, interrupt this massive party that's going on in the royal palace and he does it by writing on a wall, a finger writing in the plaster of this royal palace. It's incredibly provocative. And I love the idea that it's divine graffiti. Uh, I'm not saying that that gives license to all graffiti artists out there, uh, but we know that God has done graffiti in this world in Daniel chapter 5. Now the king gets this message. He brings the wise men in verse 7 and 9. Now these men are all skilled with cosmology, language and also science. They're the best of the best, they're the brightest. But they cannot interpret this uh, message. They don't know what it means. And so Daniel's called in chapter 5 verse 10 to 29 and he interprets the message with clarity. The servant of God understands true reality and he speaks what matters and he shows the king what the message is all about. Verse 30, the interpretation uh, is fulfilled. Belshazzar's life is taken. The Babylonian Empire this great, powerful nation falls. Belshazzar is dead. Pride has its effect and it comes through this message. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign, the king hears, and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have weighed, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So pride not dealt with. It leads to a consequence. It leads to death in this instance. It leads to the loss of power and authority. It leads to separation from God forever for Belshazzar. Now, you might get to a point where you think, well, this is a bit harsh. God's justice and judgment, it sounds a little bit difficult, you know, especially in this day and age. But friends, we've got to remember something very important. Belshazzar, from God's framework of thinking, he's a creature. God is the creator. God is the one that's the great gift giver. He's given Belshazzar everything that he enjoys. But Belshazzar did not want to acknowledge that. He didn't want to give any worship or honour or praise to God. He mocked and offended God. And if you mock and offend God... Through pride, there are serious consequences. And the Bible talks about those consequences from Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. But I think there's some things that we can learn from the Belshazzar story, especially about not falling into pride. You see in uh, chapter 5, verse 22, that Belshazzar, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't learn from the mistakes of others. We read these words, you knew all this and you didn't humble yourself. In other words, Belshazzar saw the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. He saw his fall and he also saw his reinstatement. He understood what was going on and yet that didn't have an effect on him. He didn't think that that was going to have any bearing on his life. It didn't change his behaviour in any way. Actually, it reversed his behaviour. Instead of actually being humbled by what he saw through Nebuchadnezzar, his pride increased. And he did what Nebuchadnezzar never did. Verse 23, we're told that Belshazzar sets himself up uh, against the Lord of heaven. He mocks God. 
in the middle of this party. You know, the things that have been taken away through the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, the goblets and all the sacred things, he brings those out. And that's a way in ancient times of mocking uh, the God that you've actually, or the people group that you've conquered. So he brings them out, there's revelry, there's praise to the gods of bronze, iron, wood and stone. And it's a way of saying the God of the Hebrews is meaningless, he's weak, he cannot do anything to save his people. Uh, but God's got a message for him. You didn't honour me. I'm the God that holds in his hand your life and all your ways and you're not going to repent. So the consequence, you're not going to turn away. You'll lose your kingdom. You'll lose your life. There are real consequences to pride. This is the end of an era that we're witnessing uh, in these verses. Babylon falls forever. It's judged by God because of its pride. Now, brothers and sisters and friends, um, what's the lesson for you and I as we think about Daniel chapter 4? I think it's an important lesson for us to think about and that is that pride affects us all. And I want to think about that individually as we can apply that, also in our families and think about it corporately as a church. So pride affects us all. What does that mean individually? Well, it means for one that if I was to go around to everybody in this room, every single person, if they were honest and open in the, the depths of their heart, they'd have to admit that they've been affected by pride. But pride is one of those strange things. It's a little bit like greed. If you talk to people about greed in Christian circles, you'll actually find out pretty quickly that there's no greedy Christians. I don't think I've ever met somebody Uh, that's admitted to being a greedy person, especially not a Christian. And pride's a little bit like that. You know, you sort of go around asking people, are you proud or do you have a problem with pride? Most people will say no. And that's because pride is insidious. It's sort of a little bit like cancer. It works behind the scenes and slowly eats away at the moral fabric of our lives. And indeed the moral fabric of our families, the moral fabric of our churches, and also our nation. It's insidious. It's a spiritual disease. And so we need to take pride seriously. But the awesome thing is that God has given us the most incredible weapons against pride. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us the gift of prayer, uh, talking to him, communicating with him. And he's also given us the gift of one another. The, the, The most incredible privilege is being in a church family where Jesus is esteemed, the Bible is loved, and where people hold one another accountable, you know, where they want to grow in maturity. But friends, can I say that if we're not using the weapons of the Bible prayer and our church life against pride, you can be sure that pride will be having an effect in our lives. It doesn't stay dormant. It's the DNA of human beings. It's the air that we breathe. It's the sort of the water that we swim in. And so we need to be fighting against this uh, with regular and wonderful Bible reading. You know, it's a good thing to be in a, a daily pattern of being in the Scriptures. But not just reading the Bible for five minutes, but actually feeding on the Scriptures so that they have an effect on our lives, so that they change the way that we think, they change the way that we behave. And also having... Um, continual time in prayer 
And you can be sure that if you're not reading the scriptures, feeding on them so that they're directing your life, you're not having deep and profound times in prayer, that pride is at work in your life. Because what pride says, the message that it gives is, we don't really need the Bible that much. We don't really need prayer that much. We don't really need one another very much. We can do it ourselves. Thank you very much. That's self-sufficiency. That's pride. And the antidote to those things are time in the scriptures, uh, prayer and time with one another as a church family. Now I want to admit from the outset that I don't get this right in my own family. I've got three children uh, married to Sarah and one of the things is that there are patterns of pride in my own family. And I'm sure if you think about your family uh, for a moment, you'll see or notice that there are patterns of pride in your own family. And I want to encourage all of us today to take a stand against pride in our families because pride is a spiritual cancer and it will have an effect on our spiritual health and that of our children. And one of the best ways to take a stand against pride is with the scriptures. And so I want to encourage us all, whether you're grandparents, parents, friends of Christians with children, uh, to make it clear that the Bible is central. The Bible's central in this family. The Bible's central in what we do. Uh, you know, whether that's in the dinner, um, around the dinner table in the morning before kids go to school, but we want our children and the grandchildren to actually understand the Bible central. The Bible is the antidote to pride because it keeps bringing us back to truth. And the truth is that we're creatures. We're not the creator. We actually need God. We're not self-sufficient. Think about it for a moment. You cannot take another breath on planet Earth unless God wants you to. You need him. You need sleep. You're dependent on those things to keep going. God doesn't need sleep. He is all-powerful and we want our children knowing these things. We want it central in our family because we know that God opposes the proud but he loves to give grace, loves to give grace to the humble, to those people that recognise their need. And how can we think about this corporately as a church? What does it mean for St Matthews? Well, St Matthews... I come to Manly so frequently and I often think this is the most incredible church building. It's got the most incredible opportunities to reach out into the city of Sydney and the northern beaches with the glorious gospel of Jesus, a message about Jesus, the humble servant king who came and humbled himself and died. He showed great humility through the way that he washed his disciples' feet and he also showed his power through his glorious resurrection. But friends, if we are serving the humble king, we ought to be known for humility. And that'll mean that uh, St Matthew's in this prime position will be known as a church that is humble, that's gracious, that's kind, that's generous. And I know that St Matthew's is known for many of those things, but I just want to encourage you to, as a church to cultivate humility. It also means corporately um, that we want to fight, fight, against church, uh, fight against pride in church life because pride divides but humility unites. Pride takes glory for itself but humility wants to give glory to Jesus and also praise to others for what they've done. Pride works for the best of me. Ch 
church is for me and what it gives me. But humility um, means that people come to church wanting to serve, wanting to give, wanting to give back to the community, you know, praying for their leaders, just doing incredible things in serving others, all for God's glory and for the good of his church. So what's God's life lesson? What was it for Nebuchadnezzar? What was it for Belshazzar? What is God's life lesson for you today from Daniel chapter 4 and 5? I hope you take a couple of things away from today. That God is the king. He is God. He is sovereign. You can trust him. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us back into relationship with him. But also I hope you heard the message that pride goes before a fall. And think about that in your own life, within your family, within your work context, within friendships. And also think about how that might affect this church family, St Matthews. May God bless you uh, as you serve him this week and into the month ahead. Look, we're just going to have just about 20 seconds of quietness and then I'll finish off in prayer as we reflect on this message. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace that's been expressed in the person of Jesus. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you love humility and we pray, gracious Father, that you would enable us to grow in humility, to cultivate a demeanour of humility individually, within our families and also within our church family. We would pray, gracious Father, that you would equip us through the scriptures, through our time with you in prayer and our accountability with one another to grow in humility, all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.